Hello and welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. If you've listened before, welcome back. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, I have a treat for you today. Two guests on the show. I have both the writer and the artist of Crossroad Blues being published through Image Comics. It is the graphic novel version of Ace Atkins' book, Crossroad Blues, published in 1998, and is one of his Nick Travers novels. He is joined again by artist and collaborator Marco Finnegan. This is their second time together working on a Nick Travers graphic novel, the first Last Fair Deal Gone Down. Ace Atkins is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist and also a New York Times bestseller. He has written many crime novels, both true crime and fiction, and he has also been approved by the estate of Robert B. Parker to continue writing the Spencer series of novels. As for his current graphic novel, Crossroad Blues, here is the description according to Image. After a New Orleans college professor goes missing while searching for the rumored lost recordings of bluesman Robert Johnson, who, as legend has it, sold his soul to the devil at a Mississippi crossroads, and Nick Travers is sent to find him. Clues point to everyone from an eccentric albino named Cracker to a hitman who believes he's the second coming of Elvis Presley. The book is in black and white and is out on April 25th in comic book stores and May 1st in bookstores. And so now joining me via telephone, writer Ace Adkins and artist Marco Finnegan. Here now on Creator Talks. and Marco. Welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Marco, I want to begin with you since you have a limited time with us today, but I appreciate you making the time to talk to us. Let's start about your background. It's fascinating. While you were in college, you had to write about a Silver Age creator, a hero of yours. And I'm going to ask about that in more detail momentarily because that's a fascinating story. But first, were you a big fan of Silver Age comics? And if so, which ones did you read? I kind of came to them later. Like I, you know, I was a kid growing up in the '90s, and I loved, you know, my Image comics. I still love those things and the X Men. And then when I was in college, I had went to this really neat comic shop, and it was like a weekly visit. You know, it was almost like my bar. I walk in, I talk to these guys, and it was San Diego Comics in San Diego. And the owner, Greg, was a huge Silver Age guy. Had a bunch of original art laying around, and. So I'd go in there weekly and we'd talk about stuff. And I somehow, he got me into Steranko somehow. And then from Steranko, he said, well, if you like Steranko, then you're going to love this Gulasi guy. And so I got real into Gulasi. And then that just started it. Like I, there was this whole era of like pre-1988 comics that I didn't know about. He just had a great backlog. And I just started going through there and uh, digging around. And then I ended up talking to, a couple years later, talking to Michael Lark who's an artist on Lazarus and really talented, nice guy. And I reached out to him just through email one day and started telling him how much I liked his stuff. He said, well, if you like my stuff, you got to look at this guy, Alex Toast. And I was like, oh. So then I dug deep. I was head over heels with Alex's stuff. And at the same time, I was working on my fine art degree at Cal State Fullerton. And one of, it was this really crazy, eclectic class. And one of her lessons, the teacher's lessons, was to reach out to an artist that you like. And so I tracked down Alex's address and I invited him to lunch and he wrote me back a real short and curt postcard saying that he doesn't go out in public because he smokes and he feels 
he's publicly shamed and but he would answer clear concise questions i spent a lot of time i wrote him eight questions and then uh didn't hear back from him and then about two or three weeks later i got this huge eight page letter back from him and it reeked of cigarettes and sharpies like my wife uh, <laughs> asked me politely if i would read it on the porch and, you know she, i was really excited so she was real supportive and she's like oh and she's like but it's it i mean it was it reeked and i mean just that's the smell was just Sharpie and cigarette. He gave me eight pages of how he came up and what his process was and what his influences were and what his thoughts were. And just these great, you know, eight page rambling letters in that Alex Hill's way of talking where he says three words for one word and divides them up. And it was just so cool. On the envelope, he wrote, I don't even know what the hell you're trying to do, whether it's animation or comic books, you didn't explain. So this may have all been worthless. And <laughs> And so that must have been the last thought he had before he mailed it off. So we wrote back and forth a couple of times. I never had the guts to show him work. He was a good gateway into that. And then from him, I kind of went more into Kirby. And uh, and so I really liked it. And then I went back into comic strips. So that's kind of where I where I look to now more for influence is that era. You know, a lot of Kirby, a lot of Alex's stuff, a lot of news strip stuff. That's just kind of where I like to kind of pull my influences from. And for a book like Aces, you know, that's right up that alley, that kind of Pulp Fiction-y noir kind of stuff that I like. Another artist you're a big fan of who highly influences your work uh, was Darwin Cook. Did you have a chance to meet or write to Darwin? I never got a chance to meet him. You know, I kind of dropped out because I was really into comics in college. And then I actually interned at Top Cow. And I was the least influential intern ever. I didn't even talk to anybody. I just answered phones in their film department like in 2000. And I was so intimidated by how talented the guys were. Michael Turner was there. Sylvester was there. I think Francis Manipal was sending stuff in at the time. And uh, it was just ridiculous the amount of talent that was there. And I came to a realization that I don't think I'm good enough for comics. So I started teaching art. And then I started freelancing storyboarding a lot. So I storyboarded commercials and bad independent movies that was my night job so i would teach through the day and then but i still kind of always wanted to do comics when twitter kind of came around like i started getting more interested in doing it but trying to find that right story and then you know that led me to stalking ace and after the restraining order lapsed it all just kind of came together (laughs) apparently you can't hide out in people's bushes and watch them write it's weird well if he had been clothed at the time we would have been okay (laughs) yeah that's a bad image I'm glad this is, it's good that this is a podcast. This went weird real quick. <laughs> well, Marco, you were um, already a fan of Ace's work. You'd read many of his novels. So when he reached out to you after your post, what was your reaction? I mean, you must have been blown away. You must have been over the moon. Oh, yeah, I was stoked. I'm a huge Robert Parker fan. And I came to Ace's work through that. And then I liked his other stuff too a lot. I think I drew Spencer online. I don't know know how it happened, but I ended up sending him a drawing of Spencer. The coolest thing for me was like, there's a drawing of Spencer hanging over the desk of the guy who's writing Spencer. For me, that was enough. I was like, that's sweet. You know, that's pretty cool. You know, that's as close as I'm going to get to that world. And then turned out Ace, you know, liked it and liked comics and was a fan of the Darwin Cook Parker books. And we tried to get one book done and it was a mess. It wasn't really our fault. And we just had a good collaborative environment. And then he said, hey, I got these Nick Travers books, and I'm a huge fan of the blues, and it was perfect. If I could have written that, I would have written it. It was an easy segue. It wasn't something I'm, – I'm not a huge sci-fi guy in terms of, like, that's what I want to work on. So Southern culture, I, even though I've never been to the South, I've always been fascinated by it. The tone of it was exactly the kind of book that I like to do, a tough guy with a 
Heart of Stone, who happens to be a PhD in music. And I think Marco's style was really just kind of perfect for that, really lean and stripped down, black and white. And I was talking to somebody earlier today about Nick Travers, where it came from, and, and that world really came from classic hard-boiled fiction and the tradition of Hammond and Chandler, but then also my love and appreciation of blues, and all that stuff is really lean, spared out, spare and, and pared down, and Marco's art just captured it perfectly. And you have a nice visual way of writing. Ace has a real good way of setting the scene in places that most people don't really pay much attention to, and he doesn't make them caricatures of themselves. And everything, like if you read the Ranger books and you know all of his historical ones, the Devil's Garden... There's a lot of attention to specific detail, but it doesn't become like Tom Clancy, you know, in short, overwhelming. It really does a nice job setting the scene. For someone who's translating that into visuals, it's really easy because it's just like pull this chunk of description and the mood and stuff. So, I mean, it's awesome. My biggest problem was not making it a 600-page comic. I think Marco's given me too much credit because there is a description, there are scene setters, that kind of thing, but it's really... Capturing something visually is something completely different than just on the page. Marco is able to condense things that I took three or four pages setting up or ideas or storylines or whatever and turning that into a singular piece of art, which is really terrific. He's able to stay so much with one piece of art, which is to me just absolutely amazing. I think, Marco, you alluded to this. Was it Devil's Garden you were trying to put together a graphic novel for that? And there were just some rights issues. You couldn't quite get it out because of that? It came together really quickly, Marco and I talking about what story to adapt, what would be really the best project for us to take on. And we knew we wanted to work together. Uh, we knew we wanted to take on a project, but which one of my 20 or so books, which one was it going to be? So I had the idea of doing something for a novel I wrote called Devil's Garden, which is a, based on a true story about the Fatty Arbuckle uh, scandal that happened in 1921. And it also involves, as it did in real life, Dashiell Hammett and a lot of the early days of San Francisco and you know all kinds of great stuff that would have been wonderful for um, Marco to capture uh, visually. But we just ran into a rights issue dealing with agents and publishers, and it, things were very tied up, and it got complicated very quickly. But I'm hoping at some point that may be something we can straighten out and fix. We certainly had some good interest in it. I think it could have gone somewhere, but something to pick up later on. I certainly hope so. I would really love to see that. Now, what you did manage to do was Last Fair Deal Gone Down, another Nick Travers story also, the name of a Robert Johnson song. You said you're a fan of the blues. Both of your books that you've worked on together have the name of a Robert Johnson song. Why is the focus on Robert Johnson? This story came about from my very first novel. Crossroad Blues was my first novel that actually came out exactly 20 years ago. It came out in 1998. And so Nick Travers is a hero that lives in New Orleans. He's kind of a problem solver of sorts. But he's also very much into the blues. He teaches classes on blues history. And so all of the stories all touch on facets of that music. I've gone a little bit into other areas. I've written about, you know, soul music, and those have titles that are, you know, certainly of classic soul songs. But for the early Nick Travers, and, and I continue to write Nick Travers short stories. In fact, I'm even working on one right now. And I love going back to the origins, which is the, the original inspiration, which was Robert Johnson. And for those not familiar with it, could you please share a bit of what you know about Robert Johnson's recordings and the legends of The Crossroads, which tie into your current graphic novel, Crossroad Blues? Well, you know, when I was really into, still am very much into blues. I live in Oxford, Mississippi. I live probably, you know, less than an hour from the famous Crossroads or where people think the Crossroads actually stand. But uh, Robert Johnson was a very important Depression-era blues singer, 
um, wrote some amazing songs, died penniless in 1938, August of 1938. And the legend is that enabled to gain these powers of incredible musical talent, he sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads. And in turn, he was able to play like no other person. And he is a really singular talent in the world of blues and a towering mythical figure. And his death at the age of 27 is one of the great mysteries. I went to the crossroads, fell down on my small apartment crowded with a lot of detective novels and a lot of blues albums with a lot of liner notes. So it came from me reading these liner notes by this guy named Steve Levere talking about Robert Johnson in 1938 and his murder and what possibly happened and, you know, the legend of making the deal for, uh, you know, for his soul and that kind of thing and just kind of merged there with the Maltese Falcon. And uh, that's how Nick Travers was born. One of the characters I really like in your book and, Marco, you've depicted this wonderfully, too, is the person who thinks he's the second coming of Elvis, complete with karate moves and everything. (laughs) (laughs) Was that a little nudge on the king? Because there was some criticism that he would steal music from these blues players and not give them credit. Disclaimer that Ace and I are both huge Elvis fans, too, so any excuse to draw Elvis is huge to me. (laughs) Yeah, and it's certainly, you know, it's funny that comparison talking about there is uh, something that could be read in the text of the story about uh, a bad guy that looks like Elvis stealing blues music. That certainly was not intentional. Uh, like Marco, I am a huge Elvis fan. I'm a big Elvis nut as far as his history. The truth of Elvis, uh, not to go far too far into Elvis, we could spend hours talking about Elvis, is he loved the music and came to it with a deep appreciation. And it wasn't that he came to it to steal it or rip anybody off or whatever. Uh, He just really liked it. And he broke down a lot of doors between the black and white community down here. So I think it's become kind of a popular thing as of late to knock Elvis that he stole bits and pieces. But I'll tell you a brief story. There was a DJ down here in Mississippi that was sitting on a panel talking about this very issue. He worked at at an African-American radio station, and there was a white historian that was up from up north and he was knocking Elvis about stealing the music and what he did and the guy just held up his hands and he said did you know the boy and the historian said no he said well he said don't talk about him he said Elvis used to come to our black dances he used to come in and support our community he said don't knock Elvis so anyway that's my Elvis speech but yeah I certainly come to Elvis because he was amazing I honestly thought that that's why you did it like I thought that was just like an inside thing that you did like (laughs) I really thought that that's what you're subtly saying. No, I think the reality is, is I think that deep down, I have always wanted to be an Elvis tribute artist, and I've never had the guts to do it. (laughs) And so I think about, you know, what it would be like to actually wear the jumpsuit or wear the 68 comeback leather jacket or, 
You know, and I and I'm like, yeah. You know, this book came about in the '90s, also when talking about the origins of graphic novels, and you know, I think this is why these books have really translated well because the character is a little bit larger than life. I mean, Nick is a little bit larger than life. He's a little bit tougher. He's a little bit cooler. He's more edgy, smoking cigarettes, and then you've got a hitman who thinks he's Elvis. I mean, I was certainly influenced. I think a hell of a lot by like Tarantino films and true romance and there was so much in the 90s i think with over the top cinema with uh, that really almost felt like graphic novels that's how that world got a little bit quirkier and a little bit weirder than what i what i'm doing now i told you my uh elvis doing a storyboard job for a guy and i go into the studio in hollywood and my parents always said that i would hallucinate elvis like they like they figured i would be so obsessed with him that i would hallucinate him so i'm walking the studio and i'm supposed to meet with the main guy to do a storyboard job and I walk in, and it's a sound studio, so I walk in, it's all dark, and there's this big, huge guy, like six foot two, standing with his back to me. There's a bunch of Elvis memorabilia in the studio, and I, and I go, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Marco, I'm here to do the, I'm here to talk about the storyboard job. And the guy turns around, and he goes, who the fuck are you? But he says it with like an Elvis draw, and he turns around, and he's got the 1970s Elvis hair, and the huge glasses, and the shirt, and this guy looks exactly like Elvis. And I'm freaking out because now I'm like, have I finally cracked? Is this how I go out? And so the guy turns around and it turns out this guy, according to him, was one of Elvis's studio musicians. And Elvis gave him the blessing to continue on being Elvis and has lived his life as Elvis since then. And he's hugely successful because he rents out music studios. But it was the single most surreal moment of my life as far as celebrity interactions because I felt like I was talking to Elvis and he would tell me what Elvis was telling him when he was writing the script because it was about music. It was weird, man. Marco, as you and I have talked about as we've collaborated over these years, you've got to come down here because on, uh, <laughs> around Memphis, that will happen to you every other hour. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I can handle it, man. I don't, think, I don't think I can handle it. I'll take you down to E.T. Boulevard, and I'll introduce you to about 50 of those people. And that's really, again, <laughs> where, where Jesse Guerin came from. Is There are people that you know we could come across this afternoon if we were – at Graceland or, or at Elvis Presley Boulevard, who kind of come to Elvis deeper than a fan, where it almost has a mysticism to him, uh, where that they really feel like, I want to say a religion, but it's certainly a belief system. And uh, there are people with incredible tattoos, and they really come to Elvis as almost like a saint. I'd read this book. It was an academic book years ago before Jesse Guerin came out. It was called E, Reflections and Faith. And it was about how Elvis at some point was going to become a religion. And so that idea also fed into Jesse Guerin's his personal belief systems. Now, Mark, I'm being mindful of your time. So before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you about a couple of things. You have a couple of books coming up, one coming up very soon, I believe. You did do work on Where We Live? I did. I actually was really lucky. Um, Alex Segura from Archie Comics, one of the nicest guys in comics, asked me to draw his story, and it's colored by Kelsey Shannon, who's just ridiculous. So I got to do four pages in that. It's such a great book. I live out here in Temecula in Southern California, and so many of our community members were affected by that. I mean, we had kids at my kid's school whose parents, you know, one guy was a firefighter who went there every year with his wife, and he ended up getting shot in the back, shielding his wife, and people around the neighborhood had relatives, and it was such a it was one of those things where you can't say no to, and it's a witness account. So I drew a witness account, basically, dramatized version of it, to read this witness account, first of all, and then to try to draw it and you know, with the respect that it deserves is pretty awesome. So, yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. I'm a tiny part. There's 130-something people, so 129 of them are way more talented than I am, but 
it's really just neat to be a part of something so important. And another thing you're working on, I think this is for next year, you're writing and drawing a book, Lizard in a Zoot Suit. Yep, that's the tentative title that we're going with. It's coming out from Learner Publishing, and it's a 130-page like graphic novel. And it's just mixing my love of like 80s Spielberg-type movies, some Chicano heritage about the Zoot Suit riots that happened in L.A. and the 1930s, where Chavez Ravine is now. I just kind of combined the two. One thing I didn't see growing up a lot was kids that look like me. I'm Mexican-American. You didn't see a lot of kids like us, you know, in action films. Aliens only landed in the suburbs, you know? I wanted to kind of bring some of that stuff into kind of the area that I grew up in. My mom's from El Paso. So the word Pachuco comes from people who migrated from Texas to L.A. Um, because El Paso was called Pachuco. So she was kind of a Pachuco at her time. So it's an interesting world that, you know, we don't get a lot of attention to. And I, you know, I wanted to put a little fun sci-fi stuff in. It's like a young adult book. So pretty excited. Writing is a lot harder than drawing. I'll tell you that right now. Well, Marco, thank you very much. I won't keep you. And uh, we'll carry on here and we'll talk about you. <laughs> we won't talk about you. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, talk about me. Talk about me all the time. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll uh, tell you the real story about Marco as soon as he gets off the line. We'll talk. As soon as I get, yeah. Uh, no, it's been a blast. Thanks, man. And uh, the book's fun. And, you know, hopefully we're going to do a whole bunch more. We've got two more stories. I was talking to someone earlier um, about this very issue. And what I'm really hoping is that Marco and I, uh, we'll branch into some new original territory that'll be specifically tailored just to grow Nick Travers to create more new stories for that world. So that I think that's ultimately my goal with this is for us to do some new material. He's a great character, and I think we've just we've just really in this one scratched the surface. You know, as far as the stories we can tell, the first one was just kind of a nice introduction, and then this one really we got into the character more. And I think I've read two of the next ones, and they're fantastic books. So there's a lot of stuff we can do in them. So I'm excited about it. Well, I am too, Marco. And again, I mean, the, the way he brought this thing to life is just really exciting. I'm looking at it right now, and to see it come together is just fantastic. Thanks, man. All right. Now, you guys want to listen to Ace and I just compliment each other all day. That's how <laughs> we do. All right. Take care. Talk soon. Bye-bye. All right, Ace. I understand that you had an obsession as a kid with books. I did too, but not to your extent. Uh, two things intrigued me about that. One... You had an interest in the Ian Fleming novels, which I just recently started reading a bunch of those. I mean, actually, I'm working on one right now, Moonraker. And you also like to buy you know, rare books. Now, that's pretty unusual. Where did you find these? And what particular books or authors did you like to collect? You know, it's funny you mentioned uh, Ian Fleming because uh, so much of my fascination and what I've been drawn to came from finding those books. And, you know, it was as simple as I, I had a kid in class. I remember I was in eighth grade and, you know, we're sitting in the back of class or math class or whatever, and he had an Ian Fleming novel, and he basically said, if you like the movies, the books are a lot better. You're going to love the books. you got to read this. And I think I picked up Goldfinger when I was about 15, 14, 15 years old, and then I started back, and I read Casino Royale. I just loved it. I mean, it was just wonderful. And went through the series, and then I was looking for other things like it. And, of course, you know, Chandler and Fleming were very big friends, and then I would read stuff that was usually more crime-based. You know, this is pre-internet, of course, some of the Fleming books were out of print. And I'd have to go to secondhand bookstores and like Moonraker was out of print. And I'd have to go find a, an old signet paperback with the wonderful covers with the sexy women on it. And that made it even better to read those books. And I started a collection and I still have a huge collection of books. And then that got into first editions and that kind of thing. I was a very unusual uh, teenager for sure that got into uh, collecting rare volumes. That's exactly what I buy is the old signet copies. I have one in here in my hands, Moonraker. It's got the 
the art on the front, the one on the front with the rocket and everything. So that's the ones I pick up. Those are the ones I try to seek out are the ones from the 60s with the uh, the cool. Oh, they're terrific. The... Yeah, I love that. I've seen most of the movies, and I actually do prefer the books because there's something about the stories. There'll be this tremendous amount of detail of what James had for lunch in the officer's commissary. I find that's kind of interesting. But the fight scenes, the violence is more like what I see, at least what I've seen in your graphic novel. It's not choreographed. It's not pretty. It's very brutal. It's very real. You know, it's not sexy and cool and just James can't do any wrong. And the same with your characters. It's more like kind of a Rockford Files, Jim Rockford. Like, you know, things don't always go well for him. (laughs) Sure. Another hero of mine, Jim Rockford, for sure. Going from Fleming to Rockford, uh, many years ago, I had the real privilege of sitting down with Stephen J. Cannell, who created Rockford. I had a meeting with him in Los Angeles, and he was an amazing guy. And he was, I think he took a meeting with me just because he, at that time, he'd kind of retired from television and got into writing books. And he wanted to sit down and talk books. And I had published about seven novels at that time. And he said that really the whole genesis for Rockford was to do a detective like no one else had seen before. And part of that was he's going to make mistakes. He didn't like a gun. He was, you know, living from paycheck to paycheck. He didn't necessarily always do the right thing, things like that. So I always keep that in mind uh, with the Rockford influence. But going back to Fleming, you know, what you're talking about is what they would call the, the, uh, the critics called it the Fleming effect, which was as a former journalist, he would just detail not too much, but just great stuff, whether it was about food or about travel, or he would often spend two pages just describing a woman, which to a 15 year old kid was extremely exciting. You know, I, I love books. I, you know, I read kids' books and whatever. But what I would really say that I got turned on to become a voracious reader, it certainly was through Ian Fleming. And you went to Auburn University and played football there. I did, many years ago. My wife went there too. She did not play football there. Um, but she does tackle <laughs> me here at home. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, like, being on the field and the brutal nature of football and the clashing of titans, did that influence to your writing in terms of some of the more violent scenes, having played football and having felt the impact of other people? That's an interesting question. I never, no one's ever asked me that question before. You know, I think that, you know, if anything, uh, when I was playing football in college, it was probably more of a hindrance to me getting more writing and reading. Uh, the graphic novel we're talking about, uh, Nick Travers, is he has a football background. I will have parts of it where he gets in a fight. And it is almost like he's in a football game as opposed to if I'm writing Spencer and Spencer is very calculated with his boxing, you know. So, yeah, yeah in some ways, I guess that uh, it has trickled in just a little bit. Talking about some of your writing and your writing skills, after college, you began doing some writing, some freelance writing. And you did some work for, I believe it was the Tampa Tribune and your editor helped you a lot learning how to write. And I went through the same process, although much later in life writing articles for a newspaper that I wanted to write and the editor sat me down and also took me through how to write economy of words, using the most descriptive words, getting to the point. Tell me about that process you went through. I started off right out of college when I left Auburn and I was a part-timer, not even a part-timer, just a you know, picking up an assignment when I can from the St. Petersburg Times, just a wonderful newspaper. And I did that for about a year. And then I actually became a staff writer for several years with the Tampa Tribune. And so I was a staff writer with the Tampa Tribune. And I got to work with some just wonderful, both at the Times and, and at the Tribune, really excellent editors who, as a young person, taught me how to write and leaving out the BS and getting to the point and 
you know, collecting good quotes and an economy of words, as you said earlier. So it was invaluable. You know, I, I sometimes feel bad for some people that go through, you know, MFA programs. Sometimes can be a more coddled effort. It's not as harsh. But when you're in the newspaper business, it's sink or swim. And, and unfortunately, that world doesn't exist anymore. But when I got there in the late 90s, it was still very much a print-driven machine. And uh, I was working with people that had been around for decades. They taught me so much about writing and crafting stories. That whole training came at just the perfect moment in my life. And and that's what I wanted to do. You know, I'd read so much about Hemingway and about his early days working for the Kansas City Star and being a cop reporter and chasing the latest crime and being involved in all that. But then also sitting down with an editor and having them look at what you write and saying, okay, what's the story here? You know, you've got a lot of ideas here, but let's get to it. Let's get to the damn point. It was a great experience. Like I said, I got there at the very end of that business before it changed a great deal. I was lucky to do so. I'm looking forward to the book coming out uh, on April 25th, Crossroad Blues. I read it. I loved it. And I'll definitely be reading more of it. I'm going back reading some of your books, too, because I really do like that character, Nick Travers. What I can do now is we can go into my fun questions I ask all my guests before we wrap up. Nothing too difficult. Just have fun with it. Okay. Ace, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? That's maybe the most difficult question you can ask. You know, my idea of the best thing that I could do, rest and relaxation, is to be somewhere near the water, possibly a beach or a pool or whatever, and have a book and sit down with a book, a great little vintage paperback of Ian Fleming or John D. McDonald, and have a nice cold beverage nearby. And to me, it really doesn't get any better than that. I haven't had that time in quite some time, but maybe sometime soon. Next question. Think back to a birthday that stands out in your memory anyone. Why is it that birthday stands out to you? Was it a person, a place, a gift? What was special about it? Um, Well, I'll tell you an interesting thing. You know, we're talking about books and talking about influences. One of the biggest influences on me, of course, was Robert B. Parker. And Robert B. Parker, to me, was just the absolute best when it came to writing the kind of stories I like to read, you know, hero-driven fiction. And so on my 22nd birthday, I was not able to make it because I was practicing football. I couldn't make the book signing, but my mother got Robert B. Parker to sign a book for me and he signed it to Ace. And I didn't know that his nickname was actually Ace 2. And he had signed it to, you know, to another Ace. Robert B. Parker. Years later, and now I'm working for the Robert B. Parker estate and continuing his legacy. So that was a pretty special birthday present to get. Now, still thinking back, look around your bedroom as a kid growing up. What posters or pictures did you have on your wall? You know, I always had something Star Wars related. That was a really important moment for me seeing those films. Um, And they still stand out to me as being really formative to me. But of course, you know, I had, I'm trying to think what I've had. Most of it would have been pretty embarrassing, I'll be honest with you, as a kid from the 80s. <laughs> I may have had a poster of Huey Lewis in the news, maybe one of Madonna, and then probably, to be honest with you, I was a teenage boy, some you know girl in a bikini. Maybe Heather Thomas from The Fall Guy, something like that. <laughs> okay, still in your room. What music was on your turntable? I was really, you know, when I got into music, you know, I think the first music I ever got, I remember getting the first cassette tape, you know, when I actually went to Peaches record and, uh, Records and getting through my very first album. And it was a cassette and it was Joan Fett, the Blackhearts. I love rock and roll. And then as I got older, 
got into rap music. I really loved rap music. And so most of the stuff that would be actually records on my turntable would have been things like, you know, Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash, LL Cool J, Houdini. You know, I loved that. I lived in Atlanta at the time, and there were a lot of acts that used to come through there. And it's a big, you know, early hip-hop scene. So as a strange young uh, white dude, um, I thought it was the coolest music I'd ever heard. That's great. Now, hypothetical question for you. You're stuck on a deserted island. You only have one book you can take with you. Which book would that be? Oh, man. Um, only one book. How to Get Off This Desert Island. I think that would be the one I'd take with me. <laughs> that is the practical one. But uh, <laughs> just have fun with it, just for pleasure. Like, what would you take? What's one book you could read over and over again? Man, um, I think the book that I would say, you have to read a book over and over that's going to find new stories within stories, and it's almost like every time you read it, it's something new. It would probably be Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men. That is such a complex, beautiful novel that it's stories within stories. And there's um, a good buddy of mine, the uh, writer, the late William Gay, once said, uh, All the King's Men is actually more hard-boiled than Raymond Chandler. And so that's the book that continues to fascinate me. If a toy company were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? You know, I'd like to say it was a bottle of bourbon, but it probably <laughs> would be a keyboard. <laughs> probably a keyboard, maybe a keyboard and a bottle. If I could have two accessories, it would be an old school IBM typewriter keys. And the other thing would be the bottle of bourbon. Well, that actually answers my next question, I think. What is your beverage of choice? Would it be bourbon? You know, when I'm writing or when I'm finished? Well, when you're finished. When I'm finished, it would be bourbon, but while I'm writing, it definitely would be coffee. I could not do half the things I do without a, a tall coffee by my side. Final question. What question have you never been asked that you wish someone would ask you? Something people don't know about you that you would like them to know? You know, I've been very lucky to, to do a lot of interviews over the years. I've had a lot of questions asked, but I don't know if there's anything I say, boy, I wish they'd ask this one thing about, you know, what I do or my job or the stories. I mean, maybe one thing that I, people may not know about what I do now, um, I read a series of books about a character named Quinn Colson. Uh, they're set in Mississippi. And I think sometimes I don't get to talk about the influences of those books, where they really come from. And I'm a big fan of what I call classic Southern action films, things like White Lightning, Bokey and the Bandit. I'm a big Burt Reynolds fan. And I think so much of what I do now is influenced from being a kid and watching those films. And even to this day, you know, I could watch something like White Lightning, or even though it's not Southern, something like Billy Jack. And I see where so much was hardwired to my brain as a kid and, and really how that series developed. Well, Ace, thank you for being on the show. Looking forward to Crossroad Blues being published through Image Comics. It's coming out April 25th in comic shops and May 1st in bookstores. Ace, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Well, thanks, Chris. I enjoyed it. All right. And next week, I'll be on special assignment, as they say in the business. But I'll be back on Thursday with returning guest Sam Johnson to talk about the Free Comic Book Day edition of Geek Girl and about Free Comic Book Day. Please join us. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks this week. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and also on Amazon Echo and Dot Devices. Just say, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks to hear the latest episode. In addition, you can listen to the show and follow it through Podbean, your feedback is greatly appreciated, so please rate and review on iTunes if you like the show or an episode that you heard. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to helping the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking a bit of time to do that. 
For your convenience, in the show notes of each podcast, I have a link to my iTunes page where you can rate and review the show and see the entire list of shows available. If you haven't heard them all, take a look through. There are living legends and up-and-coming comic creators. Tell family and friends who like comics and comic book creators about the show. And to subscribe. The content is free. Just as valued are your comments and feedback. You can reach me through Facebook and Twitter at CreatorTalksPod. That's at CreatorTalksPod. You can also reach out to me by email. You can find that at my website, CreatorTalks.com. At the website, you will also find blog posts, reviews of books that I have read that you might want to read too, my catalog of podcasts, and videos and other written articles on the website, CreatorTalks.com. A hearty thank you to all my guests. It is an honor and a privilege for you to make time to be on the show and talk to me about your work. It is your knowledge and insight into the creative process that makes the show so unique. My thanks also goes out to my family who makes this show possible, especially my executive co-producer, Mrs. Calloway. I'll be back each and every Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.